Hello there everyone in digital land. I hope this finds you well on this uh, otherwise overcast and drear Saturday afternoon. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking to a lovely writer and human being called Ashley Clayton Blunt on her new creative memoir, creative non-fiction memoir, How to Be Australian, an outsider's view on life and love down under. Um, I've spoken to Ashley before pre-podcast pre, pre days on for a digital publication called Compulsive Reader for Ashley's then book collection of uh, essays and novella, My Name is Revenge. Today we're going to be discussing though uh, how to be Australian, an outsider's view on life and love down under. Not only that, but we're also going to be discussing what Ashley does as the Senior Program Officer for a fantastic institute within the writing community of Greater Australia and Sydney, uh, Writing New South Wales. So we're going to be talking a little bit about what they've got going on at the moment, the courses that are coming up. But in the interim, please give a big digital round of applause to Ashley Clayton Blunt, joining me to discuss how to be Australian. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me on The Right Way. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Thank you for having me. Good, 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 good. Um, I've got a lot of questions about how to be an Australian and I want to go through them. Now, I'm going to do this a little bit differently to what I'm used to because I don't want to, I don't think we need to kind of ask where the inspiration came from because obviously it's your journey. But what I wanted to start with is I wanted you to talk about your prologue with you when you fell down in the, the midst of this kind of um, pretty savage sort of Canadian winter in the snowbank. So can you just lead us through that? Because that was the former Ashley before Ashley came to Australia type thing. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I grew up in Western Canada and most of Western Canada is incredibly brutally cold in the winter. It gets to minus 40 degrees Celsius or colder. Uh, the schools close at minus 50. So that's an indication of just how you're expected to just sort of tough it out in those conditions. And I, when I, when we were, uh, when I was 10, my family though, we moved to Vancouver Island, which is not nearly as cold. It's, it's on the Pacific side of the Rockies and it's, um, uh, goes to maybe, maybe minus five in the winter. Minus five is a very cold day. So it rarely gets snow. So there, if there was like snow, it was like the schools were closed instantly because no one could drive in the snow. So we were there for four years. And we moved back to the prairies and moved to Winnipeg because my dad was in the military. And all of a sudden we were back to these winters of minus 40 that could start in September, October and go until April, May. You know, you'd still be getting the occasional snowstorm in May. And I just, I realized it was like, oh, wow, like you don't have to do this. Like there are people out there who don't do this every year. And so I just got more and more bitter about these just horrible endless dark winters and there was there was a specific time that, that I portray in the prologue where I was walking home you know through the snow drifts and the snow banks and just the wind on the prairies can just be so intense and I, I slipped on the ice and I fell and I just was lying there and I was actually on the ground thinking oh, that's so much better why is it so much better and realizing that the snowbank was actually shielding me from that horrible wind. And that's when I was just like, I just don't want to, I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. It was my first year of university. And it, I, so I, you know, was committed to finishing university. But as soon as university ended, I was out of there. I just, I would, I was determined to get out before the snow came back. 
So did that prompt the, the kind of, cause I, I remember you mentioning sort of the reasoning as to why I come to Australia. I thought it was to do your, your degree, but there wasn't all that much. I, I guess that the weather permitting might've been some factor in deciding, making you decide to come to Australia, but was there that much uh, inclination to come beforehand or was that just literally the reason why? I was always really keen to live somewhere where the weather was good. That was, that was, that was the, you know, guiding principle, which is like, take me somewhere where the weather is nice year round. And the reason why we ended up in Australia when we did was because I um, had always, you know, long been interested in, in Australia, just conceptually, just based on the weather and the beaches, not, not on anything more complex. Um, but I, at, at the time that we came here in 2011, I was, I was planning to do a master's degree and there's a very good master's program at the University of Sydney that I got into. So that was sort of like, okay, like now we have a visa, uh, because my husband, I, I could have gotten a working holiday, but my husband was too old for the working holiday. So mm. we had to find another way. And the other reason for Australia was I figured he would love it. Like I thought, I thought my husband would really love it. And, and I was right. He does. <laughs> awesome. Um, can you talk me for a little bit about when you first came to Australia? Because there was a huge culture shock when you went to the hostel in Newtown. And you described it. You've got, you, there's a few times where you describe the place that you're in. There's a lovely sense of place. But I kind of want to hear it from your own words because you saw some people, some barefoot people. You saw um, there was a few other sort of culture shocks like the, uh, the seeing cockroaches for the first time properly or weird addresses. So just take me through that. What was the culture shock like and how did you adjust to that? I think the important context for that goes back to what I said before, which is that although I had always had this lovely picture of Australia in my head, I had never done any research on Australia. I just assumed it was hot Canada because why wouldn't I assume that? Uh, and I had, got, I had gone, so when I left Winnipeg, I actually went and lived in South Korea, and then I lived in Peru, and I lived in Mexico. So I had been living in countries where, like, the cultural gap was really obvious. Like, there was a big language gap to start with, but then, all, like, the culture was just, you know, you knew it was going to be different. So you went in with that expectation. So when I came to Australia, I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. This is going to be fine. And so, you know, I'd done a lot of research into the degree program, but I'd assumed that just, you know, they speak English. We're, we're Commonwealth cousins, just rock up in, in Sydney and, and it'll be breezy. And, and that first day, definitely, I, I was just sort of like, oh no, this is going to be really, really different. Because there were just all these things, just layers of things. And the first one was trying to order coffee, which for me was okay, because I, you know, I like a cappuccino or whatever. I, I, was, I was into espresso. But that was still in Canada, that was considered very fancy. Like that was, a, that was a fancy coffee. You had to go to a proper cafe to get it. You couldn't get it at, you know, most restaurants did not have an espresso machine. Uh, so my husband, who wanted just like a, a cup of what we would call coffee, but is, you know, American drip coffee with a little package of cream, just trying to explain that to the, to the server and, and the language gap between what he was saying and what she brought him was, was the first sign. Um, seeing people barefoot on the street, uh, but not just on the street, but like getting on a bus or like in a grocery store, we were just like, what is going on here? Wait, who are these people? Um, the houses had had names. That was, I think that got cut from that first chapter, but there was used to be a section on just like, why do these houses have names? What are these, are these estates? Like we were very confused by that. Um, and then uh yeah the, oh and the addresses and we we'd, we'd had a 
uh, insight into that before we arrived because we'd arranged to stay in this apartment that had this very peculiar address. It had like a slab, like a forward slash in it. And we were just like, I'm not sure what's going on with this address, but it looks a lot more like a math equation. Like there's, there's algebra involved in the address. So we, we quickly realized, oh, this is, this is going to be a place full of surprises. What about the, the cockroaches? Because you mentioned at one point when you oh. when you first get you get your apartment and all that, and there's like a there was a good line that I laughed at, and it was talking about how biohazards are sort of a kind of like an everyday occurrence and a way of life within Australia. Like you're bound to encounter, particularly in an apartment. There was something about a cardboard piece of cardboard as well that was like covering sort of droppings and stuff like that as well. Yes. So, was, so we moved into this apartment that was the, the best we could afford in, uh, you know, in, uh, within a reasonable distance of the University of Sydney. Uh, and because that was another shock was the fact that when rent is charged by the week, we'd never heard of that. So when we first started looking at prices, we sort of assumed they were by the month and we were like, oh, this is very reasonable. And then and then did that calculation and realized, no. So we got this apartment and it was, to give some context on this, it was $250 a week in, in Newtown, which is, or in Enmore technically, which is like crazy cheap. And the reason for that was because it, A, was full of cockroaches uh, and B, there were pigeons living in the ceiling. So this was, <laughs> they were a separate issue from the cockroaches and their um, excrement had corroded the, the ceiling and so a few days before we got there uh it had you know just a piece of the ceiling had come loose and fallen into the bathroom sink and so these tradies had come and duct taped a piece of cardboard over the hole that was their that was their temporary solution that was in place when we arrived so we we got a we got a real shock about that but but in starting to read about australian culture that's when we discovered the sort of the cult of the biohazardous share house and that actually we were participating in this Australian tradition of living in these terrible homes where you know the mold had evolved into more animal than vegetable and uh yeah there's just you know people would be very proud of the biohazards that they lived with yeah that's, it's, it is definitely a thing particularly um when renting and share housing um particularly mm. black mold black mold is like kind of considered this kind of like throwaway like kind of funny thing, but I'm pretty sure that's like, especially if you're only exposed to small amounts, but it's pretty fatal pretty quickly. And I've, I've encountered it myself and known multiple people that have rented that have like pulled stuff back because it had like a weird smell or find it difficult to breathe in a room and then pulled something back and go, oh, that's all black mold. Like that needs to, oh. needs to tell the landlord about that because that's, that's real bad. Yeah, yeah, that's, that can be really serious. Absolutely. Yeah, so like balancing you coming here, you doing your degree, Steve, trying to get a job. There was also, um, I was impressed with uh, sort of how quickly you seem to connect, um, not just with um, people of different cultures, but also the Armenian community itself. And there's one point that you mentioned kind of early on, you're like, I only thought that I would connect with the Armenian community within, within the realm of sort of textbooks, not within a physical physical way, let alone within Australia, you just didn't think that that was going to happen. But you, you did, and you described um, a bit about going to Western Sydney and, and, and hanging out with Arme the members of the Armenian community. Can you talk a little bit about that, actually, how that kind of came to be and how that sort of enriched your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Because, uh, yeah, like you said, that was, it was really a wonderful surprise. Um, so, basically, the degree I was doing was a Master of Cultural Studies, and the 
the thesis I was writing was on the Armenian uh, cultural diaspora around, you know, around the world. And my family is part Armenian. My great grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide. And so I'd started this project where I was researching their history uh, in Canada. Uh, but I had never lived with my Armenian family in Canada because my dad, because he joined the military, we'd always lived all over, but never near them. So I had this, this family connection, but I'd actually had, you know, applied for a research grant to go and stay with them in Ontario and, and do interviews to actually learn about my own family's culture. And uh, that had sort of snowballed into me doing this degree. And I had chosen the degree again, purely based on the program. And I had done no research into uh, uh, like Sydney or Australia. And it should, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me in hindsight that there would be like a cohesive, active Armenian community in Sydney because it's a big global city. There's one in Toronto, there's one in Montreal. But it was just because I had been so focused on getting into the degree program and how I was going to write the write the like the thesis. When I actually ended up just randomly meeting Armenian people here and and then having them invite me to get to know the community and then pulling that into my research, going and interviewing a whole bunch of people in the Armenian community in Sydney. It was just so wonderful because I felt like I'd moved halfway around the world and ended up closer to my family than I'd ever been in a way. And that was just a wonderful delight and continues to be. I still have close Armenian friends and, and, I, and that's, you know, a really special part of my life. It does sound really as, as unexpected as it was invaluable. How much did that go? Because obviously your, your first um, uh, sort of published work within Australia was um, My Name is Revenge. So there was obviously the novella component of that, as well as the essays. Did that help with that at all in terms of bringing to life some of the more experiences that you might otherwise not have known about or the textbooks couldn't really kind of educate you about? Yeah, absolutely. That um, in that book, part of the research process was I, you know, it started with that research in Canada. I interviewed everybody there. I did the, the first thesis here in Sydney, and then I spent two months over in Armenia, and I talked to like anybody who would talk to me there. And then I spent, um, you know, months here, just you know, kind of snowballing interviews. So I'd talk to someone and they were great and then I'd ask you know who else should I talk to and they'd give me three more names so I'd go and talk to them and uh so all of that all of that is layered into um my name is revenge in both the sort of just the, the deep insight into that culture because even though it's in my background and in my family I, d I grew up away from it so I had to put in that effort to to come to understand it and you know talking to if you sit down and talk to 140 people and write notes on everything they tell you, uh, you're going you're gonna to get a fairly good insight into the, into the cultural challenges and, the, and the, you know, what it's like to come from that background. It's amazing that um, this kind of unexpected sort of life's whim can, can kind of prove invaluable or help you along so much in, in some way or this sort of overarching quest that you had. Let's continue talking a little bit more about your experiences because obviously there was connection with the Armenian community and then you obviously made friends with people from all walks of life or other cultures as well. I wanted to hear from your words about now looking back uh, your experience at the speaking club because a lot of it mm. sounds uh, not fun to be honest. Like it didn't sound, <laughs> it sounded a bit, um, it was definitely trial by fire, baptism by fire type thing. Um, I know Steve didn't have the best time sometimes with it, but I wanted to hear, first of all, can you just give a brief summary of what it was and looking back now, how, you, how that experience was for you, be it positive or overall? 
Yeah, thanks. Um, so there's a section in the book that is about um, this, this speaking club that Steve and I joined. And that was a section that came a lot later on into the process. It was actually after the book had been picked up by a firm press. Uh, one of the editorial questions when we did the structural edit was, you know, what did you guys try and do to get more involved in the Australian community? And I think probably they were either expecting or hoping that it would be like, oh, we joined this, you know, surfing lessons or we went to lawn bowls or, you know, something that's quintessentially Australian. But what we actually did, and because it's a memoir, you know, you got to stick to reality. What we did was we joined this public speaking club. And the reason I joined it, and this is for, you know, all your emerging authors who are listening. Um, the reason I joined it is because I you know, was working on this book and really keen to be an author. And I wanted to be able to go and speak really well about, about my about my writing and I knew that was an important part of being an author and uh, so I wasn't really I was never afraid of public speaking but I knew I could improve so that was why I joined and you know the, the scene in the book shows a very early uh, experience there uh, where again there's a cult there's a bit of a cultural clash that reveals a deeper issue that I'm having now Steve was someone and this I think is far more typical who's very nervous about public speaking uh, but I sort of dragged him along because I was like, oh, there's all these great people here and you can, you know, like, uh, you can get some practice at this and it's actually like, you know, it's a, it's a really supportive environment. And so it's so early in that, you know, that experience and in the scene in the book, like, you're right, it was a, it was a bit of a, a struggle for both of us. But actually, you know, because in writing, you've got to focus on the conflict, like conflict structures narrative. And if things are going well, then like, that's going to be cut because that's, you know, doesn't make for an interesting story. So the part that's not in the book, but is hinted at later, because it is mentioned that Steve becomes the president of the club, is that we both fell in love with that club and the people there, and we ended up staying for about five years. And uh, it, like, it was so beneficial for Steve's career. And um, even just, we found doing the public speaking regularly improved like our self-confidence just in general, like just getting up and you know doing impromptu speaking, where you're asked a question, you know, like, like and just expected to come up with a coherent response well, on, right on the spot while well, you've got 15 people staring at you. Um, it, that does wonders for your self-confidence. And I have long said to all you know, emerging writers, the best thing you could possibly do is go to Toastmasters because you could talk about your writing to a live audience and see mm. like, on their faces what is interesting and what is not. So you know, when COVID, when it's easier to go out and join clubs and events again, I, I highly recommend uh, Toastmasters or, or any speaking club for that for that experience. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about because um, because if there's one thing that's kind of um, constant throughout, and this is constant presence compared to like when you you know you jet set around. You've been I must say you've been around Australia more than I have. You've been around Australia <laughs> more than I have, and you've done more Australian stuff than I have by far. Like I'm the, you would be surprised. How many Aussies say that to me? You're not okay. the only you're the only Aussie who said that to me. Yeah? Okay, that, that's good because that needs to come out. That needs to come out right now. Like I need to, okay. to let you know that. But Steve, Steve is Steve is the one constant presence throughout. Yeah, and yeah. the thing I liked about it, and I, I wanted to ask you about it because I guess you could have admitted it, like you could have just alluded to him being there and, and stuff like that. But you, you chose not to do that. You chose to be quite honest about the relationship, and it wasn't always glamorous. And there was, the, you know, you included. Um, pretty natural sort of not epic, but still pretty, pretty serious um, arguments here and there. And I wanted to know if that was something that you yourself considered at the time, or is that something that you added in later? Did you redact some? Cause you were like, well, maybe that's a bit too, too personal, but 
overall, I guess, was it always that you felt that you had to be completely honest about it to show the whole picture rather than just this, this one sort of narrow part about becoming an Australian in that regard? Mm, great question. This book went through a huge a sort of evolution as, as the writing progressed. This book took me about five years from when I first started to when it was published. And it started as just a collection of notes on, you know, interesting things that I thought were interesting about seeing Australia from an outsider's perspective. And that's one of the things about it is that I really like, of course, you know, if you're, if you've just moved here or if you're a visitor here, you're going to get a lot out of the book. You're going to enjoy the book, but I really wrote it for Australians. And that was always my, my starting place was I want to show them like, what is this experience like of trying to, to, to fit into this place? Um, even for someone who's from, you know, a background that is as culturally close to Australia as Canada is. So I started with this collection of notes and I thought I would structure them into a collection of comedic essays, basically. Like the, the heart of the book was always going to be that it was going to be funny, you know, kind of like Bill Bryson's Down Under, uh, but just, just more personal. It would be like if a young, you know, slightly neurotic woman wrote Bill Bryson's Down Under. Um, so that was, the, that was the original idea. And then, you know, getting feedback, various manuscript assessments and working with editors and um, my writer's group, uh, it sort of evolved into this chronological story of, of my personal experience becoming Australian. And I realized in the writing that I could not tell that story without the story of my husband because we had moved here together and because he was so much of, of the experience. Like we, one of the reasons I came to Australia, like I said, I was always interested in Australia, but it was really, it came down to when we got married, he wanted to live in an English speaking country. Like I'd been in Asia and Latin America and I loved it. And I wanted to go, you know, I wanted to go live in the Czech Republic and in Japan and in the Middle East. But I made this compromise for him. And so we came and we came and we did, you know, I, I did the master's degree, I got the visa, but then he got this great job. And all of a sudden he was the one pushing to stay. And it was sort of, at first it was this sort of like, well, let's just stay for a while. He got the four year work visa. And I was sort of, I sort of found myself at loose ends because all of a sudden, you know, we're very fresh into our marriage and he's got this great direction that's now guiding both of our lives. And I, I got out of this degree program and felt completely rudderless because partly because what I expected in terms of job opportunities from that degree turned out to be fictional. Um, and partly because I sort of was making this decision of whether I wanted to attempt to be a writer. Mm. Uh, so, you know, like, what was that path going to look like? And that's a, for anyone who's, you know, started down that path, it's a scary path to, to go down. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, in the writing, I realized, oh, he has to be part of the story. And I was reluctant about that. It was, I was, because He's a very private person. He's very different from me. And I told him, I told him, you know, up front as I was writing, like, oh, like, you're in here. And he had, he had lots of opportunity to protest that, but he, he didn't really. He was fine with it. Uh, so it just, it just became more and more about our relationship because I realized that was so much of a part of my experience of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was always interested about that, actually, because... Yeah, it was kind of uncompromising in featuring everything, the darkness and the light, as it were, to kind of sound a bit yeah. contrived. But yeah, I did like that whole aspect of it. Um, look, you mentioned, and it's kind of following on from what you just sort of said, you were mentioning about how Steve got this great job and then you were kind of at a bit of a, 
crossroads. You didn't really know what to, to do. What was the, uh, do you think there was there one particular scene, one particular action or moment that made you decide, yes, I want to, I want to stay in Australia. Like, I know there's a few different moments here and there, but I wanted to hear from you if you thought there was one particular standout moment where you're like, yes, this is definitely clarified for me exactly that I want to be here. Sue wants to be here. We want to stay here indefinitely. Yeah, definitely there was. And there's one, there's a key scene in the book. It's probably, it's one of my favorite scenes. And it's the one where uh, we end up going to an Australia-themed comedy burlesque show. Yeah, yeah. And... It was billed as tracing the history of Australia. And it was like a non-Australia Day event. It was like January 24th or something. And so I bought these tickets. And then later I was thinking about it. After I bought the tickets, I realized like, oh, wait, how do you portray Australia's long history of its First Nations people through comedic stripping? That doesn't seem like a thing you can, you can do. Like, how is that possible? So I was a little bit nervous about this. I was like, oh, I don't, like I thought this was going to be good, but I don't know. So, we, but we went, and the first act was just the best thing I've just probably ever seen in my life. It was this um, Camilla Roy man who came out uh, in you know the the ochre on his on his body. He was just wearing like you know tiny little shorts. Uh, came out to this incredible uh, Aboriginal song, and he was a pole dancer, uh, uh, like a performative, actually a competitive pole dancer, but obviously this wasn't a competition. And he gave this amazing heartfelt performance where he combined traditional pole dance with aspects of contemporary Aboriginal dance. And I got to speak to him later on about, about that performance. And watching that, and that, just the whole audience, you could just feel like everyone was captivated by this guy. Like he was just so powerful and graceful and just, it was just amazing. And I saw this fusion of cultures and I was like, that's what Australia could be. Australia could take the best of everything and create something new that honors our past. And we are all free to interpret that, you know, as we, as we want to and, and celebrate what's amazing about this place, you know, which come out of a lot of tragedy and a lot of violence, but mm. w that doesn't mean we can't embrace what is good as well. And uh, that really made me fall in love with Australia. And so I really credit him. His name is Matty Shields. Uh, and yeah, I really credit him with, with um, sort of helping me turn the corner on embracing Australianness. Amazing. You ran into him later. You, you got to, yeah. you got to, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that bit in the book. You got to, you got to tell him, try, I think you mentioned in the sentence or something like try to articulate just how much of an impact he had on me with his performance. Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, another, there's, there's, I mean, there's some great lines throughout, particularly because when you're trying to address something, it's kind of ineffable, really, this, this notion of this giant island continent and trying to you know, form one's identity or understand it, be, be you born here six, seven generation like me or person that's, that's moved here. There was one line that I liked, and it was when you're in the Northern Territory, there's only like one sentence, but you talked about how there was, you learned there's no single way to be Australian. And I like that. And I wanted to hear in your own words now and see if you could kind of like expand on that a little bit as to one, how you kind of learned through your lived experience and two, how you think that that's resonated on this level of so many different people feeling like in their own, each equally valuable and worthy way, they're living their Australian identity, but it's so different 
harmoniously different but disparately different to that of the, the fellow uh, man, woman or other? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I And I think that, I mean, if we think about it, like Australianness is ineffable, is ineffable. And we like, you know, for someone who grew up on like a cattle ranch out in the outback, like versus yourself who grew up, um, I'm assuming you grew up in, in urban Australia. In a way. But like you said, okay, but yeah, perfect. So very yeah. urban Australia. Sure. But you come from, like you, like you said, multiple generations of, of uh I'm guessing Anglo uh, yep. settlers. Cops, yep. 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 yep, there you go. So yeah, <laughs> yep. versus, you know, versus all the, the whole variety of First Nations people because, you know, we've got so many different language groups and cultural groups, If you even if you just want to talk about First Nations peoples alone. So all of those people, if you got them together and asked them what it is to be Australian, they would talk about different aspects. And so there's no, there's no way to, to, boil that down to one simplistic thing. Like we have to embrace multiplicity of identity. And I think also what I'm trying to do in this book is simultaneously embrace multiplicity of the concept of home. Like, like most of us do not have one home. At the very, very least, we have a, like a childhood home where we grew up and then a home where we've you know, moved as an adult, even if those happen to be two houses that are right next door to each other, you're still gonna have mm. multiple senses of home so i w traveling around australia i really came to understand that and you know talking to people in you know you go to wa they've got a very particular understanding of identity you go up to darwin and again you've got you've got a whole different aspect on australianness and so that made me feel a lot better i realized like oh there's no one thing i have to try and like force myself into a mold to be and i what what the book argues and the conclusion that i came to is basically the effort of engaging with Australia through its getting to know its people, through getting to know its history, through physically traveling around. Uh, that is, that is how you become Australian. Like it's, there's, there's no, there's no, nothing more complex than that. It's, it's mm -hmm. that effort of engagement. And the more you engage, the more Australian you become. And so the people who were born and raised here by default, I mean, that's, just like I'm Canadian by default. I didn't have to go to that effort as an adult. But when you arrive here, you know, that's how you do it. Very well put, very succinctly put, with the more you engage, the more you become. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's deep, man. Um, <laughs> following on from the identity, I want a kind of related question. I wanted to yeah. ask, what was the most Australian thing that you think you did? And I've got a few that I want to run past you that I, like, I wondered if it was either of any of these, okay? So there was the you getting crashed into by the guy on the esky love seat thing. There was you drinking some very horrid beers. Uh, the Forex is the only one that's drinkable for Foster's. I don't even know where, like someone asked that question of where you got that. Um, and another one was the kookaburra at the end, taking, snatching your role which to me, I kind of even felt that was almost like a borderline. That's like the embodiment of Australia saying g'day to you. Or maybe was it Clovermore? <laughs> <laughs> or was it Clovermore shaking your hand and, you know, giving you your Australian citizenship plaque or, or, or thing? And, you know, what, what was it actually? What was the one that you think stood out? Because those are all standouts, but those are just some of my favourites. Oh, those are all great. Those are all great. Um, I think... <laughs> I think um... 
The most Canadian thing I ever did, obviously, was falling on that ice and landing in a snowbank. That's definitely the most Canadian thing. Um, yeah, I love all of those. It's, that's hard to choose. I think the beer tasting was, I felt particularly like such an Aussie, like, I, I, and it, that wasn't my thing. That was a friend insisted. She's like, if you're going to be Australian, be like you, this was before my citizenship test. She's like, you need to, we need to sit down and you need to try these beers. And so we tried Foster's and Forex and Chewy's uh, uh, Extra Dry, I think. And oh, and BB, of course, BB, oh. yeah. Oh. <laughs> they all just tasted like beer to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, those are, yes. I think, but I like the way you phrased the, the kookaburra at the end, stealing, stealing my sausage. As Australia saying good day to me, I'll take that as the most Australian moment. I straight up thought that, yeah. No, I thought that when I read it. I was like, oh. it's, it's like it's, the personification of Australia is like, you are one of us now. Because if you don't get <laughs> in some regard, in some capacity, then are you, are you even, have you really lived the Australian experience? You need to get swooped or have something taken out of your hands, I reckon. Or get bit by a spider. I think, I think that would also... Have you been bitten by a spider? Yeah, well, yeah. I, there's, so there's a whole other story that didn't get into the book where I, I got, uh, I woke up one morning with five very, they started off small um, yeah. bites on my neck. And uh, so my neck and my shoulder and my upper arm started to all stiffen up. And over the course of the day, these bites swelled up to about the size of half a golf ball. Really? And you could see that you could see the two sets of fang marks. Like it was like very clearly like something with two fangs. And the thing is like, and they were big. And the thing is, like, we live on the third story of an apartment building. We yeah. don't have, like, garden, you know. So we don't get a lot of bugs in the house. Uh, but we have had a, f a handful of huntsmen. And one of them does feature in the book. Yeah. yeah this I wasn't the same bit. incident. But so I figured it had to be a huntsman because mm. there was nothing else was that big. Yeah. That could have been. And so I just, I've held by either this was a very large huntsman or a very tiny vampire. And I have not yet turned into a vampire. So I'm assuming this had to have been a huntsman that bit me in the night. So yeah, I felt, I felt that was like a rite of passage. I was like, oh, I'm fucking Australian now. That's wild. That is so wild. Did you say there was multiple, multiple sets? There's, yeah, there's five, there's five bites. So I figure like I tried to roll over onto this thing and it Must you know, fought yeah. its way out. Touch wood. I've never, um, I've never been bitten by a spider. I'm, I'm Ooh. definitely afraid of them, but I haven't been bitten by a snake or, or a snake. Fortunately. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky so far. I wanted to bring completely off topic, but I just want to bring up what, what is a, what do you guys call a beanie? A talk? A talk? <laughs> a toque. A toque. It's, a toque. It's a French Canadian word. Yeah. A toque. Yeah. Okay. And then there's, there's, if you look up on Twitter, actually, like, what do people call a beanie? There's like, there's like apparently this is a very divisive term like a like yeah. a piece of you know clothing because uh people in the northeast of the united states certain places in the northeast of the united states call it a toboggan a toboggan I think you can't, yeah you can't wear a toboggan on your head the more you learn about like what people call this thing the more you're like oh this is this is wrong it's so way too many words for this but i refuse i refuse to say beanie though okay so you call it a toque? Yeah. Okay. I call it a toque. I call it a toque, or if I'm with explicitly Aussies, I call it a, a wool cap or something like that. Okay. Okay. So, actually, let's let's get into writing New South Wales because, like, you've been you've been working there for quite some time now. Um, mm -hmm. Let's let's get a little bit of, like nice little bit of a backstory as to like how they you, 
how you started to work there and what your role is now first. Let's, let's go into that a little bit if you want to give a brief overview of that. Sure, yeah. Writing New South Wales is the uh, peak not-for-profit body for writers in New South Wales. Uh, we are, uh, we've been around almost 30 years now. Uh, it used to be called the New South Wales Writers' Centre, but the name has officially changed to Writing New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And I started there in uh, end of 2015. So it's been just over five years now that I've been there. And that was one of the things in the book that I started to hint at towards the end is when I started to really, really feel at home in Australia is when I started connecting with other writers. And so the job isn't mentioned in the book because mm -hmm. it's, sort of, it's sort of outside of the narrative. But that was a big part of actually like when I got citizenship in 2016, I was feeling very much at home, partly because of connecting with the writing community. And I was really lucky to get that job as... Uh, I started as the program officer at Writing New South Wales. So I looked after sort of administering our course program. So at that time we were doing up to 80 courses a year at all kinds of courses, you know, novel writing, all genres. So crime writing, sci-fi writing, uh, poetry. We were doing, uh, you know, we'll occasionally throw in a business writing course. Uh, so, and then lots of professional development courses like marketing, for, specifically for writers and uh, just a just a great range of courses and I felt really lucky because you know I got to talk to so many writers like we've got such a great range of writers who teach mm -hmm. there uh, you know people like Kate Kennedy and JP Pomer who you interviewed recently oh did, sorry excuse me. He, he actually no sorry he doesn't teach for us yet and we're, he's, he's on our he's on our sites in the process it's in the process yeah it's in the yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, we get this big range of writers to teach for us and we're always, you know, getting new people involved and um, we're, uh, you know, we want to offer the, the best range of courses for writers at, at all stages of their career. We have a mm. lot of courses for emerging writers just because mm. those, those are the people taking the bulk of the courses. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so now I'm the senior program officer. When COVID happened, we'd already been building an online Line program for a couple of years but when COVID started basically we felt the safest thing to do and the best way to continue offering courses was to move our entire course program online for the time being so of course of course we want to return to face-to-face -face courses we you know as soon as it's safe to do that there's a lot of logistics involved in that um, you know and if you want an update you can check on our website at any time for the latest you know on that but we're very proud of our online program uh, and it's I know it's very un-Australian to say that <laughs> but we are we, we really feel like we had invested the time uh, learning how to do online courses well before COVID happened so we were mm. really well placed when the pandemic started we sort of uh, we already had that in motion and so you know we still was a big pivot but we we feel like writing courses are one of the things that you can still do really well online because yep. especially the way most of our writing courses are uh there's no live component so there's you're not sitting here on zoom with someone lecturing at you 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 are given lesson material you read through it you look at you know you look at examples and then you sit down and you do your own writing and depending on the course some courses you get a little bit of feedback uh, if you if you've got a lot more lesson material, a lot more instruction, you get a little bit of feedback. But we have courses that are just purely feedback. So we have online feedback courses in short stories, poetry, children's writing, uh, essays, and manuscript development. And that's literally like you have this body of work you want feedback on. Great, you do this course, you get peer feedback and and tutor feedback on all your submissions. 
Brilliant. Is there any particular, I mean, like now that you, you've even stepped up within your role, like becoming senior, senior program officer, is there any in particular, Ashley, that are coming up in the near future that you kind of wanted to, to, to speak a, bit, a little bit about? Or is it just, because I'll put the, um, the website in the bio on the, on the Spotify page anyway, so everyone can kind of check it out. But is there anything at the moment that you wanted to talk about specifically? Fantastic. Yeah, sure. Let me just... Um... Sure. One thing we've done, actually, I'll just give a shout out to our on-demand program. So we now have on-demand courses, which are courses that uh, you can take at any time. You, know, you enroll in them and you can start them immediately. So we've got about five already. There's one on short stories, one on children's books, a fantastic one on voice with uh, Lee Kaufman, developing your voice in fiction and nonfiction. That's really popular. So those are courses. There's, you know, obviously there's no feedback. That's the, you know, the trade-off with on-demand, but you can yeah. sit down and you can work through them. Uh, and our latest one is on uh, writing sex scenes with Chrissy Neen, which we felt was one, you know, you might not want to work on that with a group. You might want to work on that in private on your own. So uh, the sex, the writing sex scenes on-demand course is great. And you can find out more info about that on our website. But I mean, we've got such a great range of courses. Uh, we have um, one, one of those online feedback courses I was talking about with uh, Eugene Bacon, who just gives incredible feedback. Her feedback so is cool. amazing. And yeah, she, yeah she's, she's a really interesting writer, but yep. she's really generous with her feedback. Uh, so I highly recommend that. You know, we've got Kate Kennedy teaching writing conflict, and she's an amazing tutor. Uh, we have um, a course called Preparing Your Manuscript for Publication. So that's when you feel like your manuscript is, is, is ready to start sh shipping out, you know, shopping around with publishers. Well, how do you give it the best chance of doing that in terms of mm. things like your synopsis? Uh, so that's with Tiffany Sow, who's an amazing teacher. Uh, and we've got, oh, there's one called Writing Bodies, which is really interesting. It's with uh, Amanda Niehaus, who wrote The Breeding Season. And she, you know, she teaches... Uh, basically like gets into the science of, of bodies and just looks at different approaches uh, to writing the body, which is something, you know, whether you're writing poetry or nonfiction or fiction, you know, most stories are in some way about embodiment, whether that's, Absolutely. you know, um, through memoir, like trauma, or through, you know, fiction, like crime stories, whether you've got, you know, once again, uh, the literal bodies. So uh, I, I, being the senior program officer, I'm the person in charge of uh, helping the tutors shape their courses online. My background is partly in, in delivering online uh, courses for adults. And so I get to, I get to see all the content of these amazing courses. And I just like, I just, I'm so pleased yeah, so that tickle, we get to deliver these. Thrill. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. I love, I'm, it's so good to see that um, Brian New South Wales is a community, which I've been a member of quite a long time for now since I started getting serious nice. about writing a long time ago. Um, it's yeah. good to see it. It's thriving. I knew it was always going to. I knew it was going to weather the storm of, of COVID. Um, and I love seeing that there's a lot more courses sprouting up like that. So that's, that's fantastic. There's always, yeah, there's always going to be that. There's always going to be a lot of hungry writers that want to learn from some, you know, kind of pundits of the craft there. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, we might just end it, Ashley, on what... Um, Normally I ask what advice you would give to a writer, be it aspiring or established that's listening for you and within your context, I think I'd like to you to maybe try and give advice to someone that had been in your position that had maybe just landed. They have some plan 
of what they're going to do, be it academia or some sort of job, or maybe they don't, they're just going to travel. But what sort of advice, maybe broad, maybe specific, would you give to people in that position that find themselves? Who have just arrived in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting question. I would say, as I said, the more you engage, the more you learn. So, like, but it doesn't have to be the stereotypical stuff, like, like, I'm not a sports person, for example, which is very clear in the book. So, you know, you think like, oh, they go to a, a footy game, go to a cricket game. But if you're not going to get as much out of that, then don't. Like, go to a public speaking club because you're still going to meet the locals. But I think, that's, I think that's a key thing is meeting people. That was one of my difficulties in the first year here is that I was doing a master's degree where pretty much everybody was an international student. So I met a lot of fantastic people, but they were all like me. They were all pretty new to Australia. They, a lot of them had just arrived at the same time I had. So we were all sort of clueless. But it was only once I started, you know, getting out and meeting the locals uh, and, and just, ask, just asking questions, just asking all these questions. I, I, love, I love asking people, you know, what their favorite places in Australia are and where they've traveled and what they would recommend. And um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the way, that's the way to do it. And, uh, and to not have expectations. Like mm. there's no, there's no one Australianness. So go and find as many versions of that as, as you're interested in. I love it. That's fantastic. Ashley, thank you so much for talking to me today, oh. not just about your journey and your book, which is an amazing experience as well. But what you guys are doing at Ryan New South Wales is also, I love to, Ryan New South Wales, what I also love to hear as well. So thank you so much for being on the program today. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you for your fantastic questions and for, you know, for supporting Ryan New South Wales. We love hearing from our members and all the great work they're doing. So thank you. Thank you. So everyone, that was Ashley discussing her book, uh, How to Be Australian. Uh, what I'm going to do is a couple of things. I'm going to put the bios, uh, the links for Writing New South Wales's course program on my bio for this episode and i'm also going to put uh a firm press the good folks who published ashley's book also their website in the link in the uh episode description there on ye old spotify danka danka for listening to the program as always please if you haven't already be sure to check out the previous episodes they are ever proliferating and i have a hell of a lot more people coming up wanting to talk to me or me talk to them so be sure to stay tuned and yeah continue to listen and share on the social medias and the interwebs thank you very much for your patronage and support and general good vibes and you'll have a good day now